Please take your scriptures and open to Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 15, last couple verses there. As you turn there, I I wonder how many people here uh, know who Yogi Berra is. Not Yogi the Bear. Yogi Berra. Probably about half, I would imagine. He's the Hall of Fame catcher for the New York Yankees. Sorry to say that in this context. He won uh, more World Series championships with that team than than any other uh, player in history. He won 10 World Series with them. Even if you've never heard of Yogi Berra, you've probably heard or, or maybe even spoken some of his own words and you don't even know it. He's famous not only for his baseball, but for, for the, the phrases, the quirky phrases that would just come out extemporaneously from him when he was being interviewed. Uh, maybe you've said things like, it ain't over till it's over. These kind of circular phrases. Or, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Or, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. He just, these would just roll off of his tongue. He would say things like, you can observe a lot by watching. Or the future ain't what it used to be. One day when he was asked about the events of the day, he said this. It's like deja vu all over again. It's like deja vu all over again. And that's kind of what it's like in our text today. If you've been with us for a while... If you're just dropping in, you won't, you won't get it, but if you've been with us for a while, you know that a couple weeks ago, we just preached on and taught on the feeding of the 5,000, that miracle of the loaves and fishes. And then here we are, a few scant weeks later, looking at a miracle that looks almost exactly like it. So, so what's going on here? Why would the Holy Spirit preserve a second, almost identical miracle. What can we learn from this today? Let's look at it together. Starting in verse 29 of chapter 15, God's word says this. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on a mountain and sat there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others. And they put him at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speak and the cripple healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said, Where are we going to get enough bread for such a, in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and, and a few small fish. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. And his disciples gave them to the crowds. 
And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending the crowds away, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadha. I mean, doesn't it feel like deja vu all over again? I mean, it, it's, it's the same miracle. Most of our Bibles, you can actually just glance over on the left-hand side of your page or maybe flip back a page and see him doing this same miracle with 5,000. So what's going on here? Why tell such a similar miracle so close together? Well, some take this as evidence that the Bible is uninspired, that there are mistakes in the Bible. This is what the biblical critics say. They call what, what is happening in Matthew doubling. They, the reading of two different accounts of the same miracle. They point to the occasions in Matthew where there's almost the exact same thing going on in, again and again. Like when he calmed the two storms. Or he healed two demon-possessed men at two different times. Or he encounters two blind men. Or here with the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Twice. The critics posit that these stories circulated orally. And by the time they were written down decades, maybe even hundreds of years later, they say, details were confused. And no one really knew what happened. So, so the gospel writers, whoever they are, they say, were so naive that they thought that two different versions of the same story were actually two different stories. But are they really that similar? It sounds on the surface as if it's very samey. But if we look closely, we see that there are really two different accounts. There's really a lot of differences. Biblical scholar Leon Morris says Matthew clearly regards the two incidents as distinct. Think of the number of people, the different quantities of food and amounts left over. Also, the Greek word for basket here is different. One is common in the Jewish culture. One is common in the Gentile culture. He says the people in the incident have been with Jesus three days instead of just one. And the time of year seems to be different. But the most striking difference of these two miracles is not any of those. The most striking difference, the one that that pops out at us, is that there's an ethnic difference. The, The people are ethnically different. Jesus fed predominantly Jewish people in the feeding of the 5,000, but here we see it's predominantly Gentiles that are being fed. And that brings us to the first major lesson we take away from this text is that Jesus is showing here that he is a light to the Gentiles. Jesus is showing that he is who God was referring to back in Isaiah 49. If you look at verse 29 with me, you see that Jesus, it says, went on from there. Where's there? Well, you just have to look back a little bit and you see that there is the Tyre Sidon area, which is, which is up in the north, northwest, right on the coast of the Mediterranean. 
In Mark's parallel account in Mark 8, we see that Jesus goes from there and he travels southeast down along the east side of the Sea of Galilee to the southwestern shore, to the area of the Decapolis, the ten cities. This is an area where a cluster of ten cities that was predominantly Gentile. Jesus has been there before. We have been there before. Previously in Matthew, when, he, when Jesus crosses that sea and calms that first storm, when he comes to the shore, that is the shore he, he comes on, the, the area of the Decapolis. And there he heals the two men possessed of a demon of demons. If you remember there, he, he cast the demons out of those two Gentiles and into a herd of pigs, and the pigs rushed down and drowned themselves in the sea. For Jews... Nobody would shepherd a herd of pigs. This is clearly a Gentile area. Also notice, if you look at verse 31, you see after the healings, what do they do? They glorify the God of Israel. See, Jews wouldn't say that. They would glorify God. But these Gentiles were, sent, were actually putting their faith in a God of the, the God of the Jews. So the people he is feeding here are clearly Gentiles. So, so what do we take from this narrative? I think, of course, we pull all the lessons forward from the feeding of the 5,000. I won't go into detail there, but Jesus is displaying his divinity in that miracle. And he's displaying his divinity here, too. Being the God of the Old Testament who gave manna to his people in the wilderness. Secondly, Jesus is showing that he is the God of the impossible. We looked at that a couple weeks ago in the feeding of the 5,000. Taking an impossible situation in a desolate area and bringing something from nothing. And lastly, Jesus displays that he is the God of the abundance. The God of abundance. Twelve basketfuls left over before. Seven basketfuls left over here. Jesus is God of the abundance, not just physically, but also spiritually. You remember, he, sh- he says as much in John 10.10 10 when he says, I came that they have, might have life and have it abundantly. And that's the message that he is communicating in this miracle to the Gentiles. That's the message. Jesus has come to offer life and light to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He's beginning, if you will, to turn on that Isaiah 49, 6 light. Of course, the divine order is first to the Jew, but then to the Gentile. We're witnessing the but then to the Gentile here. God's redemptive plan has always included, always the, the end point was to have the Gentiles grafted in. I mean, that's what we see back in the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Genesis 12.1-3, the calling of Abram. Leave your, your people, your father, and your country and go to the land I will show you. And all nations will be blessed through you, Abram. Eventually, Abraham. All nations, not just the Jews. And we see glimpses of that in the Old Testament, don't we? Certainly with the, with the Jonah narrative. 
here Jonah is sent to the Gentile city of Nineveh to, to offer them salvation. We see that with the Syrian general Naaman, one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, coming down full of leprosy, encountering Elisha, and Elisha healing him, and he puts his faith in the God of Israel and takes that faith back to Syria. I mean, we see that in, in the books of Ruth, in the book of Esther, the, God's compassion and love for the Gentiles. Yes, first to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. I hope you noticed the plan in our public reading of Scripture, right? There, in Genesis 49, one of the four servant songs in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53, those four chapters are describing the work of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And there, God is speaking, and he's saying, listen, it is too small a thing to be my servant. He's talking about the second person of the Godhead. He's talking about the coming Messiah. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. In other words, my, my love is too big just to confine it to one people group. And he goes on to say, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God's love and compassion and salvation is bigger than Israel. And he's showing it here by going and feeding the 4,000. Just like the 5,000. First the Jew, 5,000. Then the Gentile, 4,000. That was the plan all along, brothers and sisters. That was the plan all along. That was the end goal God had in mind when he put together his wonderful plan of redemption. First the Jew, but then to the Gentiles. One plan, one covenant, eventually one people. And we're seeing it right here. I mean, that's what Matthew's gospel has been hinting at all along, even from the genealogies. If you remember the genealogies, you encounter those four Gentile women in Jesus' line. You have Jesus' encounter with the Gentile centurion. You have his first Decapolis visit in Matthew 8. You have the Canaanites woman's faith that we just encountered last week. That's where, gospels, that's where Matthew's gospel is heading, isn't it? I mean, you just have to flip forward a couple pages to the end of Matthew, and there you have the Great Commission where he's saying, go and make disciples of what? The Jews. No. Of all nations. Baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. As a matter of fact, the plan for the Gentiles were the last words Jesus ever spoke on earth. Right before he ascended in Acts 1. He looks at his disciples and he says, You will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem? Okay, good, got that. In Judea? Okay, got that. In Samaria? Oh, we're going outside. And to the ends of the earth. Quoting Isaiah 49. And here we are, brothers and sisters, at the ends of the earth. Do you realize that? This is the ends of the earth. This is what he had in mind. 
The commission still stands. We're still to go and make disciples and share the greatest treasure that we have ever been given. But we tend to be like Tommy Tomlinson. Anybody know Tommy Tomlinson? He's been in the news the last several years, anyway. He made history back in 1988, though, when he discovered the sunken ship, the Central America, that was known as the Ship of Gold. This steamer went down in a hurricane about 200 miles off the coast of the Carolinas in 1857 with an estimated $50 million worth of gold bars and coins. In 1988, 161 investors paid Thompson $12 million to find the ship and they never saw a dime of it. That's because Thompson disappeared after he found the treasure. U.S. Marshals finally found Thompson years later paying cash for a hotel room rented under a fake name in an upscale suburban neighborhood surrounded by golf courses and country clubs. The Great Commission, many times we are like Tommy Thompson, aren't we? We find this great treasure in Jesus. We're given it as a gift. Where Jesus forgives us all of our sins. He absorbs the penalty for that on the cross. And he offers us his righteousness. What bigger treasure is there than that? If you're a born-again Christian here today, your heart should leap a little when you hear these things. That's an amazing treasure that he just gives us. Yet, what do we do with it many times? We Tommy Thompson it, don't we? We take it and we disappear. Brothers and sisters, we're called to go out into all the earth. We're called to live out our Christianity out loud. We're called to to be people that can be convicted in a court of law for the evidence that we are born-again Christians. And if you look at your life and you say, you know what? I think, I think I've taken this treasure and Tommy Thompson did. Kind of taken it and then disappeared. I call you today. Today. To go into all the ends of the earth and proclaim. Today can be a watershed day for you, brothers and sisters. This is what I've been living through this week. This application. Blake, don't take the treasure and disappear into the woodwork. I pray that you won't either. The second lesson I think we learn from this text is that it is a guide for the disciples. It is a light to the Gentiles, but also a guide to the disciples. Here again in this text, we see Jesus prompting them to do the impossible, right? To do the impossible. Feed thousands with meager resources. Feed thousands with this time seven loaves and a few fish. 
And we clearly read in verse 33, and you can look down there with me. Look at the disciples' reaction to what Jesus asked them to do. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Does that make you scratch your head a little bit? I mean, these are the same disciples. The same exact disciples that just a few months earlier were handing out bread and it was multiplying somehow. We're not told, but 12 basketfuls left over. Everybody's satisfied. Have they forgotten? I mean, is it possible that they could forget that? Would you forget that? If you had a miracle happen in your hands? Are they so dull? Could they possibly be so dull? John MacArthur seems to think that they are not. He writes that he takes their question as an acknowledgement of their lack of resources. They're saying, in effect, in verse 33, we're no more capable of feeding the crowd now than the other one. Okay. Maybe. I love what R.C. Sproul says honestly here. He writes, I'm completely unable to explain why the disciples seemingly could not remember such a vivid display of God's power. Isn't that kind of how you, where, I, where you land? It's kind of where I land. I'm completely at a loss. But, could it be that the disciples are a window into our own hearts and minds here. A foil, if you will, for our mind, our heart, and our experience. They have forgotten what Jesus just did. Did they have total amnesia? Are they looking around at an impossible situation? And could it be that yes, they remember but they sink into unbelief. Can't can't do it. In other words, they're living in so much of the now that it blinds them to God's faithfulness. Now think about that. They're living so much in the now, in their circumstances right now, that they're blind to God's faithfulness. Does that ring a bell in any of your lives? This certainly rings a bell in my life. Hasn't that happened to you over and over in your life? Where you're in a situation and you go, "Ah, I've lost my faith that God can do something here. We live so much in the now that it blinds us to God's faithfulness in the past. And even his glorious promises for the future. You all know 18th century missionary Hudson Taylor, who went to, the, to China, one of the first missionaries to China. He's the father of what is called uh, faith-based mission movement. The faith-based mission movement. 
Before Taylor, missionaries would have all their financial resources before they went on the field. However, Taylor never ever asked for support. He relied on, quote, moving men by God through prayer alone. He inspired who we met a couple weeks ago, George Mueller, to do the same with his orphanages. To help him live this kind of faith, he hung a plaque in his home with two Hebrew words on it. Ebenezer, Jehovah Jireh. The first word means, so far the Lord has helped me. And the other word means, the Lord will see it to it and provide. One reminded him of God's past faithfulness, the other of God's promises in the future. One looked back, while one looked forward. Brothers and sisters, we would do really well to hang those two words not only in our homes, but in our hearts. Because we, like those disciples, live so much in the now that we, it blocks out what God has, how faithful God has been in the past. We live so much in the circumstances of the now that we forget what he did in the past. So we have to train ourselves You know, if you're a born-again Christian here, you are a disciple of Christ. That just doesn't mean follower. It does mean follower. But it also implies that there is discipline in your life. And, And I think that this part of our walk needs discipline. We need to train ourselves to look back. We need to train ourselves to look at the Ebenezers. We need to remember in times where we're living so much in the now that we forget God's faithfulness that he has provided thus far. That's what scripture does over and over again. If you're a reader of scripture, you see this over and over again. As a matter of fact, today's call to worship, you remember the call to worship, the responsive call to worship, is how God trains us. That's why Psalm 136 is in your Bibles so that we can be trained to look back. What was the refrain you said over and over again? What was it? His steadfast love. Let's all say it again. His See how quickly we forget? And we say it over and over and over and over and over again In the psalm. Why? So that we can just fall asleep and we don't have to really engage our minds? No, so that our minds are trained to remember the faithfulness of God in the past. The psalms are there so that you can personalize them. It's the only part of scripture where God gives you that kind of latitude. Just wholly personalize it. So God wants you to personalize Psalm 136. So we need to say out loud... To him who found me a job when I lost one before. To him who brought me out of depression three years ago. To him who provided my electric bill before. To him who brought our marriage out of a hard season in the past. 
to him who has found us a teacher before. To him who has protected my children. We have to look back. So that we can remember God's faithfulness in the present. But we also have to look forward. We have to look forward too. We just can't look back. God wants us to look forward too. To the promises of God. And that's what the second plaque in Taylor's home did. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. Future tense will provide. We have to live by the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, that's how we live by faith. I'm going to say this until I die because this is, you know, it says all over Scripture, live by faith and not by sight. And we just read over that and we go, okay, yeah, okay, what does that mean? Have you ever really thought about it? It's actually something the Bible teaches us to do as well. And that is know the promises of God, what God has said. And when circumstances say that can't be true, We live by faith and not by sight. We go, no, God says, this is true, not that. I choose to live by faith here. I see this, but I choose to live by faith. That's how you live by faith and not by sight. By looking at the promises of God and choosing to believe them. That's partly what the Lord's Supper is about. Have you ever thought about that? Hopefully, we just don't go through the motions with the Lord's Supper. He has real purpose and real spiritual nourishment for us here. And part of that purpose is certainly so that we look back. I mean, on the front of all the communion tables, it says, do this in remembrance of me. We certainly do that. But it also teaches us to look forward. Abre Sakara pastor of Evangelical Church in Abu Dhabi writes this I love cooking especially big hearty Indian meals and inviting people over to share dinner with my family cooking a big Indian meal is is something that involves several hours of careful labor as I cook the anticipation and the excitement start to build family members get previews of what's to come A spoonful of curry here, a piece of meat there. The aroma is wafting through the air. All of it increases the oohs and ahs that everyone waits to finally be seated at the table where we can dig in. As Jesus ate the final Passover meal with his disciples, he told them about another meal that he's excited to eat with us. He says, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This is a foretaste of the promises of God in the future. A promise that he will come back and make all things new Take away all sorrow. 
actually we will run and not grow weary. When we'll no longer struggle with sin. When we'll be in a perfect relationship with God, not by faith, but by sight. When his steadfast love will endure forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your plan and your promises. Lord, help us to live a disciplined life in this area. We're so consumed by the now that we forget your faithfulness in the past. And we forget to live by faith and not by sight. Lord, may this word preached this day change us. In Jesus' name, amen.